So uh, we're to pray that we would have peace in our community and our nation. He said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. It's God's will and desire that everybody be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. And what is the truth? There's one God, not many gods. Amen. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There are some religions that teach there's a multiplicity of saints that you pray for. I'm not in any way uh, trying to be, uh, you know, uh, critical of that, but uh, that does not, uh, that's not scriptural. Amen. To pray to the saints. There's one mediator between God and man. That's Christ. We pray in his name to the heavenly father. Can you say amen? Not to the saints. If you want to pray to the saints, then we'd be praying to each other because the Bible says that uh, we're set apart and made saints through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's not politically correct to have an exclusive uh, belief system or religious, uh, you know, uh, you know, belief uh, in, in our day uh, that, that there's just one God, right? But you can't, you can't believe the Bible and have an inclusive uh, belief system where there's many gods and many paths to heaven. Jesus didn't say, I am one of the ways. He said, I am the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. The only way to have eternal life, the Bible says, there's one name uh, under heaven whereby men are to be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. The Bible even mentions that there's a broad way that leads to destruction and a narrow way that leads to life. You say, well, people are sincere, uh, other religions. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. And uh, it's not the religions of men, uh, but the Word of God that uh, lays down the path. And uh, the Bible clearly says that there's only one way to the Father and only eternal life in one person, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's narrow-minded. Well, it, it's good to have confidence and know by the indwelling power of the Spirit of God that bears witness with our, our spirit that we are the children of God. I'm narrow-minded, but I'm saved. You can be broad-minded and unsure, but if you act on the Word of God, then you have the, the assurance in your heart that you have eternal life. Amen. I know one group knocked on uh, one of the doors that are really, you know, uh, proactive in witnessing and, uh, uh, you know, about their group, knocked on the door of one of my uh, Bible school uh, instructors. And uh, so he, you know, uh, just, you know, it was a Saturday morning, and he so finally he said to them, he said uh, to them, he said, uh, uh, do you have eternal life? And they said, uh, well, no, we're not confident that we have it we'll know later 
that we have eternal life. And he said, well, if I'm already got what you're trying to get, why should I join you? (laughs) John said, we know we've passed from death to life. And so the Bible teaches that we uh, can know in this life already that we have eternal life. And if you don't know you have eternal life, you need to know you have eternal life because it is a no-so salvation. When you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you're made a new creation in Christ Jesus, there's no doubt because you receive an inner witness from the Holy Spirit, His indwelling presence, as well as the testimony of the Word of God that you are born again. So... uh, non-political correctness and scriptural correctness, uh, you know, political correctness and, and political correctness and spiritual correctness often run askew of each other. Uh, I heard someone say, <laughs> they were talking about some of the things that were going on in, in a particular area of the church, and they said, well, if you look at what they're doing and do the opposite, he said, 90% of the time you'll be right. <laughs> So if you look at political correctness and do the opposite about 90% of the time, you're going to be correct. Are you still here? Because the unrenewed mind and the renewed mind are two different things. So anyway, let's move on. This passage is about prayer, right? Uh, There's one God. Thank God we know this one God. Amen. And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And we know him, thank God. Uh, and he is the one who, in uh, bringing God's love and grace to us, gave himself, which is what you see mentioned all the time about Christ. He gave himself. He gave himself. No greater love hath any man than he lay down his life or gives himself. He loved us, the Bible says, and gave himself for us. So he gave himself a ransom for all. That is, he paid the price of the wages of sin, which are death and separation from God. He was the ransom that secured our return to the Lord and our reconciliation to the Lord. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified of in due time. That is, in this dispensation in which we live. He said, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. Uh, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. He said, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Then verse 8, which is in keeping with the whole passage on prayer, he said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. And that means everywhere that the saints are, are gathered together. Everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Can you say man? I will therefore that men pray everywhere. This is God's will and what God wants us to do. He wants us to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Uh, This is specifically because in verse 9 he said, In like manner also the women... He actually is categorizing this, and men is not a generic term in the sense of mankind here, which a lot of times it is used. 
uh, you know, that men are used both male or female without any gender uh, reference. But here he specifically, there's an article in the Greek before men that indicates that he wants men to pray. Can you say men? And so, uh, like we've said before, uh, we talked a little bit about it last week. Oftentimes in the local assembly, the ladies, uh, you know, pull more of the prayer weight and have more spiritual sensitivity than the guys do. But uh, I believe this is a church that we have good men that uh, have a strong prayer life with the Lord. Can you say man? So we encourage the men not, not for your, your wife to do your praying for you. I've heard a lot of men say, well, my wife, she's the prayer warrior at our house and in our family, and she does, uh, you know, most of our praying. Well, that's not correct. <laughs> amen. The men ought to pray. Can you say amen? So there's a responsibility for men to pray. And, of course, Christ was our example as a man that prayed. And the Bible said that he fellowshiped with the Father and that there was times that he went up in the mountain into a solitary place and prayed. One occasion it says he prayed all night long. And then the next morning he chose 12 uh, disciples. He got that direction in the time that he was in prayer. And so if you pray more, you'll know more. Can you say amen? So uh, the Bible teaches that men are to take a responsibility in prayer. And then it also teaches uh, the lifting of holy hands or the showing of reverence. I just wanted to make a couple of comments on that. Uh, You shouldn't be ashamed to lift your hands in the right setting. I remember the first time that I lifted my hands, uh, started lifting my hands, I had not been until I got filled with the Spirit when I was about 21 or 22, 22 years old. And after that, uh, of course, my life just, you know, was a drastic, you know, drawing to God. The Word became more alive and and uh, and my relationship with the Lord just went into a new dimension. But one thing after that was a greater desire to praise and worship God. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, it says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I started speaking in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs at that time. Singing and making melody in your heart, giving thanks. Thanksgiving went greatly increased in my life when I got filled with the Spirit. But raising my hands also... And I remember the first time I did it in a public assembly, you know, of course, in our day, it's all dish and, and cable and everything like that. But when I grew up, you had a television antenna. <laughs> I remember the old television antennas. You had a rotary thing that you could turn. You could move the antenna around. And, and I felt like my hands were, you know... TV antennas, that they were sticking out conspicuously. But you know, I got over that really fast. <clears throat> because, I, you know, not that I was drawing attention to myself, but it's just a wonderful thing to be, there's a spiritual satisfaction in worshiping the Lord with uh, uplifted or, or with uh, your hands raised. 
And, uh, you know, this is one thing, you know, we talk about holiness and, you know, holiness, sanctification means to set apart, um, you know, that's one thing that should set the church and the assembly of God apart from, uh, and by saying assembly of God, I'm not talking about that particular group. I'm talking about in general, uh, we're an assembly of God, no matter, you know, if we're born again, we're part of the assembly of God. Uh, that should set apart the, the, the church as a body of Christ or as a family of God, lifting up holy hands because, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, and I've been in congregations and there's no harm that, you know, that people mean by it. But, you know, I've heard a number of speakers say, let's give the Lord a hand. And everybody will just clap. Giving the Lord a hand. Right? And like I said, there's no, you know, evil intent. But I do believe that, you know, if you go to a political rally, they clap. They give applause. If you go to some banquet, they clap and give applause. And there's nothing wrong with giving a guest minister uh, you know, a clap of pause or nothing wrong with keeping time with the music clapping, right? But when it comes to worship, lifting holy hands is a higher degree and a better way of worshiping than clapping. Amen. Clapping and applause is uh, really is neither worship or praise. Amen. And so, you know, don't get into a legalism thing about I've got to lift my hands when I pray or I've got to lift my hands when I worship. But uh, there shouldn't be anything wrong, uh, you know, with lifting your hands and worshiping, uh, you know, regularly or frequently. Can you say amen? And uh, greater reverence... Uh, is the, you know, prerequisite or the catalyst to greater uh, manifestation of God's anointing and spirit. The more people honor or reverence God, uh, the more he manifests himself. And so uh, there's a, a good thing with lifting holy hands and worshiping. Can you say amen? So, uh, you know, don't be afraid. You know, again, you, our motive is not to draw attention to ourselves, but in this company of people, uh, you know, if I see somebody raising their hands, I don't even think about it. I'm like, that's normal behavior for born-again, spirit-filled Christians. Right? And then some people come in, visitors or whatever, and they're like, why do y'all raise your hands? Well, one good reason is 1 Timothy 2.8. <laughs> A better question would be to respond maybe with another question when they say, why do you raise your hands, would be, why don't you? <laughs> why do you not obey First uh, Timothy 2.8? Can you say amen? So lifting up holy hands, and this is in connection with prayer. And then this is the thing that I really wanted to get into in and share with you. He said, without. Say without. So here's something that the Lord says should be absent from uh, prayer and be absent from, uh, you know, 
this obedience to this verse, uh, he said, without wrath and doubting. Now, other translations identify other things. Uh, a lot of translations say without anger and without argument. And uh, you've got some uh, other translations that say things like without uh, critical judgment and without quarreling and things like that. So anyway, in thinking and meditating on this verse, he said without wrath and without doubting, of all the, you know, we, we, we like to stay positive and approach things from the positive side. And I think anybody that, you know, is in sync with the Holy Spirit wants to approach everything positive. But sometimes it's good to go in the back door a little bit. But these, I think in this verse, these are the two things that can stop our prayer life from being effective. Doubt, right? Remember in Mark 6, 5, the Bible says that Jesus could, know, could there do no mighty works. Only he got a few people healed of minor things, and he marveled at their doubt or their unbelief. Doubt shut down, uh, you know, uh, God's power from working and made prayer and makes ministry and makes, you know, here prayer, makes it ineffective, and then another thing that makes prayer uh, ineffective is uh, wrath or uh, anger, which is connected with unforgiveness. Right? So if you want to keep your prayer life squeaky clean, are you still here? And get the greatest fruitfulness out of your prayer life and want it to be unimpeded or unhindered. Uh, to my knowledge, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, in, in the writing of the New Testament mentions two things specifically that can hinder our faith from working or our prayer life from working. And that's doubt and that's unforgiveness. Can you say amen? So uh, we're going to talk, uh, you know, if the Lord allows us to continue to go this uh, direction, we're going to talk a little uh, further about stamping out doubt. <laughs> How about going on a campaign to stamp, you know, sometimes we're like stamp out this disease or stamp out that disease. Stamp, say that with me, stamp out doubt. <laughs> And, of course, uh, stamp out, uh, you know, anger or quarreling or, you know, uh, disharmony or lack of agreement. Uh, and, uh, of course, those two things can hinder prayer and uh, shut down our prayer life. And so uh, we want to be as wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, and be able to identify these things and uh, avoid them so that our prayer stays very, very, uh, very, very um, effective. Can you say amen? So uh, <clears throat> this is, uh, I, I was looking at a Wiest translation and uh, comments on this verse earlier today. And this is what he said about without wrath and doubting. He said the words without wrath and doubting indicate the two conditions necessary for effectual prayer. Number one, 
freedom from irritation toward our fellow man. Amy knows if you're irritated and offended and you've been arguing and fighting and quarreling, then, uh, then your prayers, if you're bent out of shape with somebody else, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to hinder your prayer life from being effective. What, what did the Bible say when, when we were in, if you had an offense against someone? Uh, let's see if we can find that. Go to Matthew. I know y'all love this message and love me. Uh, y'all be patient with me here. Don't get angry or your prayer life won't work, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in chapter 6. Uh, Matthew 5. Say without wrath or without doubt. Now, we'll get into the definitions of these words, but um, Weist defined it as, without wrath, freedom from irritation towards your fellow man. (laughs) Freedom from irritation towards your fellow man. Uh, So he said here, in connection with prayer, Verse 21 of Matthew 5, he said, You've heard, and notice this is red letters, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, whoever is angry, and that's what he said without anger, with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Uh, Verse 23, Therefore, uh, how many of those those folks weren't getting along very good there? (laughs) Verse 22. (laughs) When you're calling people, uh, you know, a fool, the margin of my Bible, let's see, for that says, uh, uh, for fool, uh, empty head. <laughs> you empty head. <laughs> right? Uh, he said that, uh, that he didn't say you were going to hell, but he said you were in danger of moving that direction. <laughs> okay? <laughs> say without irritation towards your brother. Okay, verse 23, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, so he's talking about worship or talking about prayer, and you remember that your brother hath ought against you, or you've offended him, what do he say do? Go ahead and pray and it'll be all right. No, he said, leave your gift before the altar and go your way first, say first, first be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Are you, are you still with me? You cannot separate, you know, when Jesus was asked, what is the great command? He responded by saying, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, the second is likened to this, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. He put those two together, what God had put together or joined together, you, you, man can't separate. Are you still here? And so, uh, you know, you cannot separate your vertical relationships from your horizontal relationships. God set it up that way. Because we haven't seen the Lord, but we do see each other. And so living in a natural world and seeing each other, we have that opportunity to practice love with one another. And that shows our love toward God. Uh, go with me to 1 John. Say without irritation towards your fellow man. So if something's not right, you know, and there's discord, schism, division, disharmony, uh, you know, if that's allowed to fester, uh, then it will, uh, it will make your prayers ineffective. I remember when we pastored uh, in another town before we came here, First uh, John chapter 5, you can be turning there, that there was two particular ladies when we were beginning the church that we got close to. And, and you know, just in the start of the church, we were trying to play out, pray out God's plan. And uh, we would get in prayer and, and, and just flow in prayer and a lot of utterance to pray out things. But after maybe a year or a year and a half, uh, one of the ladies uh, became uh, uh, offended and jealous toward one of the others, the other. And, uh, and it, it, it impeded the unity that we had in agreement to pray. Uh, you know, they say with draft horses that one draft horse can pull like 2,000 pounds. Well, you would think then that two draft horses could pull 4,000 pounds. But actually there's an, uh, 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 you know, uh, exponential multiplication. It's not just a doubling, but it is more than doubling. Two horses together can pull, if I'm not mistaken on it, like six to 7,000 pounds, like three, what, three and a half horses can pull. Because being yoked together, and the Bible teaches that, one can put 1,000 to flight, but two can put 10,000 to flight. And you know, one of the great purposes of a church is, is that there be unity. I mean, those in the book of Acts, it's mentioned like five or six times, they were all in one place and what? One accord when things took place. And so the unity or the one accordness actually multiplies exponentially the power of God. It's the same thing with marriage, the union of marriage. Uh, you know, one of the higher motivations or purposes of being united in, in, uh, in the marriage relationship is 
uh, your prayer life can increase in the agreement of, you know, someone believing together and praying together. So in the church, in Christian relationships, in Christian marriage, in these things, of course, the enemy is going to try to attack the unity and bring about disunity. And that's where we need to realize that uh, we can't allow strife in. Say no strife. You know, one thing I've told my staff and, and, you know, and I've mentioned it from the, you know, from ministering the time, this is a no strife zone here at the church. You have a personal, you know, the Bible talks about that one thing God hates is strife and, and sowing of discord between people. And so we have a personal responsibility to protect unity and preserve unity. Can you say amen? That doesn't mean we condone someone else's sins, but it does mean that we do everything we can to work toward reconciliation because we're not going to allow the enemy. Strife is the manifest presence of the devil. Right? And we don't have to yield to it. Right? And the Bible talks about, uh, you know, I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without anger or without strife or without division or without argumentativeness or without disharmony. Why? Because that will shut your prayer life down. Can you say amen? But uh, we can, uh, we can, we can uh, identify that and keep that on the outside. The Bible says, don't give place to the devil. Ephesians 4.27 says, neither give place to the devil. So if he does have place, the implication is we gave it to him. And also the implication is we don't have to give him place. And in that context, he is talking about anger again. Right? He said, don't let the sun go down on your anger or your wrath. In other words, if you're dealing with offense, then uh, like it says in Matthew, you need to go and get that taken care of in a timely manner. Don't let the sun go down on it. I don't think he was saying you hold an offense for 12.5 hours, but when you see the sun going down, make a run for it. He's... <laughs> That's kind of like Peter. How often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And he said, no, 70 times 70. I don't think Jesus said when you get to 491 now, it's all right. Just, you know, blast him, you know. He was using a principle many, many more times than you think. Are you still here? But uh, anyway, strife is a manifest presence of the devil. And so... uh, we we can keep the door closed to the devil by keeping strife out. And he said that keeps our prayer life protected and that keeps the corporate anointed protected. Can you say amen? Uh, let's finish in 1 John here because we're... <clears throat> I wanted to read how Weist again... Uh, actually, I think you pronounce it Woost, but... He's not here tonight, so I'm taking my liberty. <laughs> Y'all don't write Brother Woost any letters, okay? Um, um, 
but very good on the Greek. He said the words without wrath and doubting indicate the two conditions necessary to effectual prayer. Number one, without wrath, he says, is a freedom from irritation toward our fellow man. So you can't pray good irritated. Get rid of your irritation first, right? And uh, secondly, the doubting, he said, and confidence toward God. He said the word doubting, and then gives a Greek word for it, means disputatious reasonings, skeptical questions, and criticism. And then he quotes a, a scholar named Vincent. He said, prayer, Vincent says, is to be without the element of skeptical criticism, whether of God's character and dealings, or of character and behavior of those whom prayer is offered. So that would be, again, he uses, uh, you know, doubtings, uh, disputational reasoning, or skeptical questions or criticism. Uh, that would be both toward God or toward others. I mean, those doubting God's going to shut down your prayers, right? And again, being irritated with other people and not getting that settled is going to shut it down. So, you know, just in closing, we said you can't separate your horizontal relationship with people from your vertical relationship with the Lord. Right? And uh, if one, if you're reckless in relationships with other people uh, and offensive toward other people uh, and angry toward them and don't work through uh, strife, then uh, the prayer life is not going to be effective. Uh, so again, you can't separate vertical from horizontal. First John chapter uh, 4 and verse 20 he said this to us. He said, if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, what do he say? He's a liar. <laughs> that's, not a, that's pretty frank. You don't have to you know, have several ways of misinterpreting that, right? He said, if a person says, I love God but, hate, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? He said, and this commandment have we from him that he who loves God does what? Loves his brother also. Amen. Amen. Uh, Verse 1 of the next chapter, man divided. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone that loveth him that begat are brought into being through the new birth. Everyone that loveth him who begat loveth him also that is begotten. So you can't say, I love God, but you know... Uh, I'll use uh, Brother Carl for an example tonight. 
I know that he's good-natured and he won't be irritated. <laughs> but if I told Carl and Lindy tonight, I love you, Carl. I love you, Wendy. But I can't stand hating. I just hate her. How's my fellowship going to be with them? Or if I told Brother Carnese and Juanita, I love you guys, but Chip just irritates me to no end. I can't stand that guy. Well, if I'm out of fellowship with the kids, I'm going to be out of fellowship with the parents as well. And so if you're, if you're, you can't separate your horizontal from your vertical relationships. And if you love him that begat, you love also those that are begotten. Now, they can test you at times. <laughs> are you still here? And you can get your love walk tested. But you have to keep those two together if you're going to have... You have to walk in love. Faith works by love. And uh, this is worth protecting, not to forfeit. Amen. And, you know, if we just had one illustration of this in the Word of God, then it would be, you know, maybe not a thing that we can major. But I can tell you about six or seven references for prayer and forgiveness is connected. The Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does he launch it to? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. After Jesus finishes the Lord's Prayer, he picks back up on that again. The verse following the Lord's Prayer, he again launches into forgiveness. We love Mark eleven twenty four. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive and you have them. Verse 25 starts with a conjunction and when you stand praying, forgive. For if you don't forgive... Neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive you. Your prayer ain't going to go any higher than the ceiling if you don't maintain that horizontal relationship, you know, to protect your vertical relationship. Stand up with us. We'll unhook here. Brother Hagen used to say that his sermons were like trains. There just wasn't no end to them, but you had to hook, unhook somewhere. So I'm, I'm doing great tonight. <laughs> Didn't hit 8, but we just turned over from 806 to 807. So praise God. Father, we do thank you that we have the kind of heart that is uh, not only a heart of faith, but a heart of love, where the Holy Spirit has shed abroad love. We thank you for helping us to be a kind, tender-hearted. Uh, Father, we purpose in our heart to keep our self-offense free, irritation free, and uh, keep our horizontal relationships in a, a maintenance and upkeep so as that you're pleased. Thank you, Father God, for making us a lover of those that are begotten of you. And uh, we give you the glory and honor and praise for it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, we just got into this, so uh, come back next week, and uh, we'll get deeper into it. <laughs>
What was that comment back there? <laughs> okay. Well, praise God. The first part of getting victory is being able to see it. So God bless you. You're dismissed. And of course, the youth don't get out till around 8.30. If you have youth, you might as well just stand around fellowship a little.